a couple weeks ago, the subject of inclusivity and people of color came up with a colleague of mine and it sparked a really good conversation and discussion as much as it sparked this idea in my head like oh my gosh this is something that we need to discuss in writing how do we accurately and respectfully portray people of color and make sure that we're being inclusive to everybody when we're writing novels. How much is too much? How much is too little? Or how little is too little? And and really, what are the things to keep in mind as we move forward and do our best to ensure the enrichment of our stories and our novels through including everybody? You're listening to The Writer's Workshop, a weekly podcast about writing, publishing, and the art of storytelling. I'm Nikki Aubercat, book editor, writer, and cultural anthropologist. Okay, so I'm going to confess something straight up. I get a little salty on this topic. (laughs) And it's not at all because of anything like bad or anything. I'm mixed and my whole family's mixed. We, none of us, with the exception of my father, none of us are white, so to speak. Now, my mother, my sister, and I, we present white. We get mistaken as white women all the time, how that means in here in America. Now, I, I say that because I know there are other countries around the world, other nations, where there's a whole different meaning, or maybe there's a whole different terminology. Here in America, in the States, um, being white is is this whole thing. You know, you have privilege, you have power, you have an advantage over everybody else. And there's also the stigma lately, and, and which is kind of sad, um, just for people who are genuinely awesome people, and, you know, they didn't choose to be born this way. <laughs> uh, but what it means for me And what it means for my family, like those of us in my family who do look white, is that we often get lumped into a group that we don't actually belong to. We also get overlooked in the groups that we do belong to, uh, like Polynesia. (laughs) Uh, So when I say I get salty about the topics of um, inclusivity and people of color, it is entirely because of how excluded so many people of color are, even by other people of color. (laughs) So let's take a moment to talk about what color even means. There are a couple definitions. One of them is absolutely cultural and particularly here for the United States of America. If you're listening to this overseas, you may be familiar with this, especially as of last year. Um, Or if you, I don't, I'm not entirely sure how much of American history is taught overseas. I'm being totally honest. Um, But in any case, being a person of color in the United States is really based on skin tone. Outside the United States, it seems kind of silly. But no, here in in America, it is a very real thing. There's categorization that happens according to skin color. Now, total side note and shameless plug, in my Mind to Manuscript course membership, I do actually have a whole section that talks about why that is, where the origins of this color coding mentality that American culture has actually came from. It's fascinating, um, but it is very much still today a very strong and problematic part of American culture. So this term, people of color, 
does literally reference to anybody who is not super pale in skin tone. It also is meant to reference anybody who has biological and slash or cultural origins in places where people typically have darker skin tones. And darker does not necessarily mean brown or even tan or black. Darker can be um, olive. (laughs) Darker can be just basically just just the side of sunburnable. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. Um, So that phrase, that terminology definitely has origins in American culture. Let's talk about skin tone, though, for a moment. I, I have to. Because when it comes down to it, and I'm so tempted to just post uh, this, if I can find again, this, this map someone created that is so accurate. When it comes down to it, your skin color means nothing more than the, uh, the placement on the planet that you are most adapted to. <laughs> And what I mean by that is the further north or south, basically closer to the northern or southern poles that you are, the paler your skin gets. The sun just doesn't really shine up there as much. The closer to the equator you are, where the sun shines bright and hot all day, every day, nonstop, and in certain parts, it just never sets. Um, That's where the darkest skin tones exist. It's an adaptation process. So when you think about it on those terms, we have wars that have been waged. We have beatings. We have imprisonment issues. We have discrimination, all based on your, you and your family's proximity to the equator. That is it. I need everybody to have that sink and let that sink in. Every time you make a judgment call based on skin tone, you're making a judgment call based on just how sunburnable is this person. That's literally how melanin works. Um, and I'm really tempted to, I should probably get my mom on on one of these podcast episodes because she's a biologist and she particularly focuses on skincare and she studies the skin, like literally um, does like cross sections and dissections and, and looks at everything underneath the microscope in a very literal sense. And she's had issues too with, with, with the, uh, usage of inclusivity and people of color stuff because she herself she is actually at least 75 if not 80 percent Samoan Polynesian Samoa is a group of islands in the South Pacific pretty darn close to the equator lots of darker skin tones the very very minute trace of Irish meaning European blood in my mother through her we believe her father's side has made her look like a white woman. It is so minute. So she's also got kind of issues with what's been going on here. Um, so yeah, but but when it comes down to the skin tone, it's all about the melanin, which is all about your proximity to the equator. All right, I'm going to get off that soapbox for a second. Because when we really think about it, just how ridiculous we as people behave based on that single principle. So going back to the issue of, okay, Inclusivity, people of color. Let's start with inclusivity first and foremost. When you are writing characters, there's a couple things that I want you to think about. First and foremost, if you are concerned about ensuring that you're being inclusive, I would challenge you to take a closer look at why you're concerned. 
is there something going on in your life or is there something in how you have perceived the world, maybe past behaviors, past conceptions? And I say this as someone who's been guilty of it, okay? Like just past thoughts of like, oh gosh, now I'm like no longer proud of. We're human. It happens. I, I bring this up because it should not be difficult to include everybody. It really shouldn't. Ideally, <laughs> I know that's a loaded word, ideally. Ideally, you shouldn't have to worry about being inclusive because it should just be second nature, just a reflex motion to make to, to just represent everybody as long as it fits the story. And I want to say this too. If you have a story that takes place in Norway, looking at you, Disney, <laughs> and you feel like it's so important to include everybody that you put somebody there who really has no business being there. Or I'm just going to come out and say it. Frozen 2 got so much flack for this because Frozen 1, there are some people who literally have no knowledge about geography and <laughs> who are like, Frozen is so whitewashed. Well, of course it is. It takes place in Norway and not even recent Norway, in old Norway. Um, now, judging by their clothing and the architecture, it'd be post-Christian colonization Norway, but it's still Norway. So Saturday Night Live actually picked up on this little well-meaning flaw with Frozen 2 and made fun of it, and it was beautiful. <laughs> Frozen 2 included a soldier who was Black or of, of African descent. It's the same time period. So as well-meaning as Disney was in trying to be inclusive. The one, and, and I'm going to say the phrase, the one token black guy, you know, the one person of color in this film that takes place in old Norway, um, first of all, stood out like a sore thumb because he just didn't, he didn't really, not, not in the smaller regions anyways, he didn't really have that going on. And, and then, like, later they show his wife, and she's also a, a lady of color. Um, but here's the thing. There are those who would argue rather accurately, well, of course there could have been black people in Norway. Absolutely! For one solid, very good reason that existed in the 1800s or so in Europe. In the 1700s. Starts with an S, rhymes with wavery. <laughs> and so, I, it, and so when, when you have family, like, my nieces and my nephews are mixed, and they are definitely darker skin tone. Um, they do have African ancestry. They're watching this and they're like, TT, why is there a black guy in Norway? And I'm like, um, they're like, were there black guys in Norway? And I'm like, ooh, oh, how do I handle this? <laughs> because yes, probably at some point. Why? Not necessarily because they're willing to be there. Not at that point, anyways. Especially at that point that Frozen takes place in in the timeline of Norway, Norway's history. So this is a very, 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 very good example of how inclusivity is not always the best when you're focusing on ethnicity and really, let's be honest, when you're focused on skin color. They could absolutely have been inclusive in multitudes of other ways that did not include skin color. When you're focused on skin color as a means to ensure inclusivity, again, I'm going to challenge that there's something deeper going on. Why is skin color 
what you're focusing on. Why not? And then, then I'm going to be honest, this goes back to at the very beginning, I mentioned I had a conversation with somebody about this um, because she kind of got berated by somebody who's very, very focused on skin color and completely overlooked the fact that the person that she this that they were talking to, my my friend, struggles with her own inclusivity issues because she has she was born with some handicaps. Um, so as she explained, some some hearing and some sight issues. Inclusivity would be including people who also have hearing issues, including people who also struggle with sight issues, like serious sight issues, like near blindness, like also including people who you know, honestly, have other things going on. Maybe they're in a wheelchair. Maybe they only have one leg. Maybe they only have three fingers. I mean, there are so many other people who do need to be included. Here's another great movie example. Um, the, the Road Doll one that was just made a film, Anne Hathaway. It had an issue of public apology. I think it's called The Witches. So sorry, but I think it's, it's called The Witches. It's, it's based on a book by Road Doll, who was just, you know, writing scary creatures. Anne Hathaway issued a public po- apology because even though she was portraying a villain who was made to look scary and, you know, what do we do? We, we make things that are abnormal to look scary. There are people out there who literally have limbs that looked like the scary limbs of this witch that she portrayed in the film. There is an inclusivity issue that, to Anne Hathaway's credit, she immediately recognized once it was brought to her attention. She's like, I am so sorry. I literally had no idea this even existed. Why do we not know this, that this, um, that this genetic thing, um, I I actually, I cannot remember what it's called. It's, (laughs) this, this just shows, like, I need to do my research more. But it's when they they, they literally were born with three fingers. Um, she had no idea that was an actual thing. And... We don't, we, a lot of us, I didn't know this was an actual thing because no one ever talks about it because no, no one ever thinks to include it. That is the definition of inclusivity. Including people. So given how much we still don't know about every little thing that goes on amongst ourselves, amongst the human species, it is virtually impossible to include absolutely everyone. So I'm going back to that challenge of if you are fixating on an aspect to include, before you do, just ask yourself, why is this the thing that I'm focusing on? And why is it such a focus? Um, Now let's look at ways that you can definitely be inclusive without being obvious about it. I'm going to bring in my own work in progress, which has taken a major sideline because great news. I've got some great authors writing some great books are coming out. So I've been busy editing those. Um, But my own work in progress that will one day be published. (laughs) um, Absolutely. Fully inclusive. I honestly can't think of a single like, okay, there's like one actual white person, capital W-T-M, white. Um, And even then he's got a tragic backstory, whatever. Everybody else, like it, the way that I describe them, the way that I would imagine them being portrayed by, you know, if I had any actors or actresses portraying them on a Netflix show, cough, cough, or anything, you know, absolutely portrayed by people of color. No problem. It just, it just made sense. That does not mean I'm going to go out of my way to make their dialogue or the, yeah, their dialogues or their dialects fit what I think it should be based on their skin tone. It does not mean that they're going to dress a certain way 
based on what I assume their their skin color means as far as culture. I can't even tell you, like I literally don't even know what kind of race or ethnicity <laughs> that, you know, I would assign 90% of these characters to super, super specifically. The important part is, is that I've allowed the imagination to run with it. I've put enough clues in there that you can absolutely fill in the blanks and imagine women of color, men of color. It doesn't matter. Um, okay, honestly, sometimes I feel like Beyonce would be a great shoo-in for the mother of the main character. I'm just like, <laughs> does it have to be her though? No, it could easily be a woman from the Indian subcontinent. Still fit the description. You know, it's, it's, it's things like that. You open the doors, but you don't necessarily have to overdefine it. And that is where inclusivity really becomes powerful. It's just, it's just opening the doors to include everybody. Maybe you have somebody who, um, in your, in your book that who could logistically have a hearing issue or who could logistically, um, have been born without a, without a limb or, or lost. I, I used to babysit somebody who actually lost his, uh, one of his legs when he was 18 months old to a tragic accident. So he wasn't born that way, but he absolutely spent most of his life wearing a prosthetic. You know, there were issues that happened. You're your kid. You're mad that you're not like everybody else. There's avenues for this, but you don't have to go overboard with it. You really don't. I even re um, recently read a really cool uh, graphic novel, one of those like uploads every week thing that my friend introduced me to. And uh, we were talking about it and like the main character, the primary main protagonist that's all about um, people in this like nickname, the beast, or he's uncontrollable and oh my gosh, he's horrible. And I'm looking at everything utilized to describe his behavior, describe like just how he thinks like, and how he interacts. And I told my friend, I'm like, cause she, she read it too. I'm like, you know, I'm no psychologist. I'm really not. But based on my life experience with people in this realm of, of behavior and, and everything, I did have to learn to, to work with children. Um, there was a brief moment in my life where I was an uh, assistant teacher for young children. Uh, I'm like, I, if I were in the realm of diagnosing anybody, I would honestly say he's autistic. I think this main character that everybody's labeling this horrendous beast, just based on all the clues the author gave, I think he's autistic, but it's, it takes place in a time period and an, and a culture where autism was just, it wasn't recognized as autism. You're just difficult, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, and there's been a lot of studies done on autism itself, where if you look back in history, there's a lot of times autism has existed forever. It just wasn't always treated as something necessarily different. Like if someone was born with autism, they were not necessarily thrown out into the wild or abandoned by the, they were just understood by the community. This person's difficult and we just deal with it. Um, you see that a lot in European folklore, uh, a lot in European records. I know there's other cultures when you get closer to the, to the Mediterranean, um, parts of North Africa, there are several times or several like passed down stories or accounts of people who were deemed to be um, kissed by the gods or touched by an angel and not the TV show way, but like in a way that's like, okay, this person is absolutely different from the rest of us, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. We're just gonna um, help them out where they need help and they're gonna help us out where we need help. 
Because if you think about it, there are different types of autism. There are different types of mentalities that make a person almost hyper aware. And so they notice things that the rest of us just kind of skip over. Things like that would get interpreted in different cultures around the world as different various types of, of skills, of gifts. They are absolutely included. So when, this is a really, really good um, line to go down because I actually um, have a writer I've been working with who, who was diagnosed with autism and she, she had questions like these of like, how, how, do, how do I do this in my books? Like, how do I avoid infecting my characters with autism? And I'm like, I told myself, honestly, what's with this word infect? How, why does it have to be an infection? Why can't it be a gift? Think about all these amazing shows that have been out. I think Touch was one of them with a Kiefer Sutherland. His son definitely has autism. His son is also definitely the the key proponent in um so many amazing things that happen. Um, there are a lot of people who are pretty positive that the modern Sherlock portrayal by Benedict Cumberbatch probably has Asperger's. I mean, there's all these different amazing portrayals of people with autism. They're included because it fits the story. I mean, if you think about it, someone with Asperger's, and I've met quite a few people who have had, who have Asperger's, they're so observant. They make fantastic detectives. I have no problems believing that Sherlock Holmes of the 21st century could definitely have Asperger's, and that's part of what makes him amazing. Definitely. It fits. It fits. That's the important part. It needs to fit the story. Well, let's go back to issues on race and ethnicity. couple things to know. I'm just going to kind of give you like a little master key here. African-American does not always mean black. A person with skin tones that would fall into the black category, if you were to categorize it, are not always from Africa. <laughs> and, and this is a big one. And oh my gosh, we would laugh about this in my, in my anthropology classes. Um, if you think about it, the continent of Africa is massive. The northern regions, very few black people. Most of them have much paler skin tones. Um, really stemming from European colonization, not much to do with the equator thing. It happens. Okay. If you think about it, a person from Egypt, like a, a standard, like native Egyptian is a lot paler than somebody from the Congo. That being said, when it comes down to it, someone from Libya, someone from Morocco, and I've met a lot of people from those regions, um, amazing, amazing people, very pale compared to, um, someone from Cote d'Ivoire compared to someone from gosh even South Africa and South Africa is a whole other thing you know with with the colonization but still you know so but are if they're living in the states does that make them African-American they are by definition African-American they are not physically black I had uh actually my first roommate in college was a gorgeous gorgeous uh black woman who always like jokingly, like she always didn't go to humor. She hated it when people called her African-American. She always say, I'm not African. I'm Jamaican. And then here's the thing too. You can argue historically, you're still African because everybody in Jamaica was brought over during the slave trade. That's how Jamaica, that's how Haiti, be, be, Haiti became a thing. Um, it was, it was the African slave trade. Be as it may, decades have passed. A couple centuries have passed actually. Um, if you are Haitian, you are Haitian. If you move to America from Haiti, you are Haitian American. 
You may also be skin tone black, but you are not African American. And that was what my my old roommate was was saying. Like she's like, yeah, okay, sure. My ancestors eons ago may have been from Africa, but my more recent ancestors in the last several decades are absolutely from Jamaica. I am Jamaican. Don't miscategorize me. That is something I really want everybody to be very, very conscious of, um, is, is this. Now, you want to talk about being excluded. Talk to virtually anybody from the First Nations of North America. Talk to virtually anybody from Polynesia. We are constantly forgotten constantly overlooked, constantly mislabeled. Polynesia does not necessarily, or at least not all of it, has as dark of a history as the First Nations. Um, now, Hawaii, it's been a while. It, it's still very problematic there, and it breaks my heart to to meet um, cousins, like actual cousins in Hawaii, who are very much struggling under the still current, actually happening today, European colonization, that is Hawaii being part of the United States. Um, looking at you, Mark Zuckerberg, get off our land. I mean, it, it's it's a big issue. It really is. It's still happening today. That being said, though, there are a lot of things also being done recognizing, hey, this is a problem. Samoa didn't really have much of a problem. You could argue that there were some problems. Absolutely. Um, they were also able to... Uh, exert some powers of negotiations. So Samoa, their biggest struggle right now is maintaining their, their culture within their culture. Um, more just external influences. It's not necessarily Australia or the United States forcing their ways in as much as it is um, native Samoans of the newer generations wanting to bring in external cultures. There's a struggle there, but it's still not as bloody or horrific as the First Nations of North America. And I'm specific with North America, meaning Canada and Mexico have definitely experienced just as much bloody history in the First Nations realm as those of the United States. Now, let's talk about that for a second. You want to be inclusive? It does not always mean Black. I have to emphasize this, because if you want to be really inclusive and get gold stars for it, include the First Nations. And I'll throw in Polynesia because, you know, hashtag bias. But no, no, we got to talk. We have to. We have to talk about the First Nations. Let's talk about a few issues here. First, most of the First Nations, and I'm just going to talk about the United States because I'm more familiar with that. Most of the First Nations of the United States of America go by names that are not their own. They go by names that white guys gave them. It's plain and simple. I, I felt so terrible. Just last year, discovered that the Crow people of Montana are not the Crow. That is a name that was slapped on them by people who couldn't be bothered to learn to pronounce their name. I'm being dead serious. Their actual name is Apsaluke. It's much prettier. It's not that difficult to pronounce. It really isn't. They even spelled it out phonetically and helped you. <laughs> like in this exhibit I saw at the Field Museum, Apsaluke. But a bunch of people from Europe who decided, I live here now, also decided they could not be bothered to learn how to pronounce, was it like four syllables? So they're like, we're going to call you the crow. And that's just ridiculous. And then I found out just the other day that Ojibwe, 
is also not the name of that First Nation. And I, I thought it was because it's definitely a linguistic thing going on there. Oh, gee, boy, it's not English. I'm like, phew, okay, now I know the proper name. No, it's the name of their shoe. I, there's a great Instagram account. Um, and if I find it, I'll post it in, um, not Instagram, TikTok. I love this lady's TikTok account. She is actually from this First Nation. And it's through her that I found out Ojibwe is not their name. Uh, <laughs> she's like, no, it is the name of our shoe style. That is it. That is literally all it is. And so whenever someone says, oh yeah, the Ojibwe of Chicago or the Ojibwe of Illinois, you're literally translating that as like, Oh yeah, the Nikes of Chicago or the Michael Jordan Airs of Illinois. You, you hear how ridiculous that sounds? Oh gee, boy, the actual people. Because they're also um, sometimes called the Chippewa, which is also not correct. And as this one uh, TikTok account was explaining, she said, Chippewa is an even lazier way to say Ojibwe. Chippewa is what people who can't even be bothered to pronounce Ojibwe say. The actual name is Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe. That's it. Anishinaabe. Anishinaabe. Five syllables. Learn it. Say it. And then if you really, really want to get so many gold stars where you like reach platinum level, anytime that you include someone from the First Nations and you want to get really specific about their tribe, do your research. Look up the actual name of the nation. Do not use things like Ojibwe or Crow or Blackfoot. No, look up the actual name. I grew up near a Navajo uh, reservation. What is their actual, 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 actual name? Nabiho. Nabiho Binahazdo. Nabiho Binahazdo. I probably just slaughtered that and I do sincerely apologize, but you know what? I am one of the very, very few people out here trying. And that is the big part, trying. I read this Tumblr post many years ago where this uh, this young woman who was going to college um, told her mom she wanted to change her name really simply to something like Sam or Steph or even just Stephanie. And her mom, who who is from, uh, was it Nairobi or Nigeria? I'm so sorry. It's either I or Brittany. But her, anyways, her mom was like, why would you do that? Your name means like daughter of the gods. Like it's so beautiful. And it was, it was, it was very long, but so beautiful. And, and this girl said, she told mom, she's like, mom, nobody can pronounce this. I just want everybody to be able to, to call me by, by my name. And then you'll give them a name that's easier to pronounce. And she said her mom set down her kitchen knife rather firmly, turned around and said, look, if everybody can be bothered to pronounce Dostoevsky, they can learn your name. That stuck with me. I'm being honest. That stuck with me. If you can learn how to say great philosopher names like Dostoevsky's or even complicated composer names like Tchaikovsky, Beethoven. It's not Beethoven. It's Beethoven. Chopin. You, you really take, take inventory of all the names you know that are absolutely not English and ask yourself, why have I never bothered to learn other names as well? Inclusivity is giving respect to the names that people have given themselves. Japan, fun fact, is not Japan. Japan is the name that the rest of the world gave them because people, again, English-speaking people couldn't be bothered to use the appropriate name. The actual name of Japan is Nihon. 
I think we should have this big, huge campaign where we, we bring it back to its actual name that the people of Nihon gave themselves. Japan is not what they named themselves. So even then, today, we're like, oh my gosh, I love Japanese culture. Well, if that were true, you wouldn't even use that term Japanese. I mean, let, let's let's get real. Um, and I, I realize at this point, I probably sound very salty. <laughs> and this is what I'm talking about. It's like, no, if you're going to blow a fit about this, then make sure you're consistent with it. Make sure that you're doing your due diligence and actually including everybody and accurately representing races and ethnicities. Um, you want to talk about complicated um, or ambiguous. Uh, I know Seth MacFarlane had a joke about Dwayne Johnson being the president of the racially or was it racially or ethnically ambiguous club? Um, fun fact, Dwayne Johnson, and if he's listened to this, please be listened to this. Dwayne Johnson's actually a cousin of mine. We have never met. He's one of my mother's like 87 first cousins and the, the family's huge. You, you don't actually meet each other. But I, but one of our cousins that we have met mutually is like, oh yeah, Dwayne Johnson's one of our cousins. Like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, he, now he is also mixed, but he is primarily Samoan and he definitely identifies very closely with the Samoan culture, which is amazing. He is not racially or ethnically ambiguous. He is Polynesian. It's when people who don't even bother to look it up make us mad. <laughs> You know, and that's where we get on the soapbox. You want to include everybody? Make sure you do your research. And then even then, you like to think about Hawaii. They're not all Hawaiians. There's a lot of Samoans there. There are a lot of people from, from Nihon or Japan. You know, a lot of people from China who moved there. A lot of people, there are a lot of South Pacific Asian islands that most people don't even know. I mean, did you know that there's Marshallese? Um, like, did you did you know about Tonga? Tonga usually gets overlooked. You know, all these different things. Um, but also, got to think about the Latino community. When you go to Mexico City, and this is something I did briefly mention in my course. Again, if you want to way more, definitely enroll. It's right now, it's like half off from what it's about to be. Um I talk about that after the fall of Tenochtitlan. So after the fall of the Aztec capital during the Spanish conquistador era, I'm thinking of uh, Cortez. He comes in. I'm arguing he really was um, Quetzalcoatl returned. He fulfilled the prophecy. And my Latin America professor was like, ooh, you have a point there. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> Cortez came in, took over Tenochtitlan with his soldiers completely obliterated Montezuma and his military. It was actually quite tragic. After that, now that Spain has control over the capital of this region, they start bringing in um, labor. And not necessarily free labor. Some of it was paid. Some of it brought in mercenaries from Nihon. Mercenaries from, uh, I think China was included, uh, but the more notable, more the most notable ones were the samurai, who who came in samurai mercenaries who came in. Um, there they brought in, they did bring in slave slaves from Africa. They <coughs> excuse me enlisted the help of the natives who were around to to rebuild the city and and get all this infrastructure work done. And as someone pointed out again from a, a great Tumblr post, I love Tumblr for for writing. <laughs> um, they said you could absolutely have a hundred one hundred percent historically accurate graphic novel or even book about a group of ragtag misfit adventurers that includes the following an Aztec warrior 
a Japanese samurai, <laughs> an African warrior. And um, I think they, yeah, I think China was a bit like getting someone from China. Like a whole mishmash of people located in what is now Mexico City. Sounds completely ludicrous, but it's true. It was very accurate. Fast forward just a couple decades, the Irish joined them. The Irish, um, during the Mexican-American War, kind of saw an opportunity to give their giant middle fingers to America. Um, you know, the United States, they said, screw you, I'm going to Mexico, I'm going to help them. There's monuments to them. So you can have one person in Mexico City whose family has lived there since time immemorial, and they still would not be fully native Aztec. Not, not necessarily. They could be, logically, African, Japanese, Irish, and Aztec in the same person. So when you're thinking about somebody from Mexico or Mexico City specifically, keep that in mind. Really do your research. Really see, okay, who exactly do I want to represent? A couple of the themes I really wanted to, to kind of challenge your thinking with as you're going forward too and, and, and asking, okay, so what are some of the uh, causes of strife behind certain groups? Obviously, people of darker skin tones in the United States have had it much harder. Um, people of African descent, most especially in more recent years. Before them, the Irish. Before them, and even after, and still today, uh, the First Nations. Um, the First Nation struggle started with disease, rolled into an actual North American Holocaust, which has now rolled into just obscurity and misrepresentation. I mean, there's this whole thing going on. You also need to keep in mind that this systematic racism has not always been based on skin tone. The United Kingdom, the islands themselves, talk about geography, were once all tribes, just as much as the First Nations of North America, full tribal system. The Germanic regions of so Germany, Belgium, uh, even Austria, Poland, all that, all tribes, just as much as the First Nation system, completely obliterated and eradicated and just merely erased from history entirely by the Roman occupation and then later occupations that came in, but primarily Roman. Rome definitely opened the doors for everything else. But no, regions that we typically attribute as, oh, the white people, those regions geographically underwent a significant amount of horrific torture and execution and slaughter and, and I'll be honest, uh, abuse of all the, all the things to the point where they no longer exist. You don't really ever meet anybody in Wales who identifies as Wode or Iceni. You never really meet anybody um, from the northern end of the islands who identify as part of the seal people. You know, all those terms, we only know about them from archaeology. They've been eradicated entirely. Don't forget that. Please do not make the assumption that just because somebody's from England means that they're this all-powerful white person. They may have just as bloody of a history as somebody from the Iroquois nation. I realize this is probably going to raise the hackles of some people. Do your research. I'm not making this grandiose statement out of nothing. This is actually backed up by, by data, both scientific and historical stories passed past down. It, it was bad. It was really bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, these, are, these are definitely things to think about. 
But again, going back into the representation too, and and there's something I realized I forgot to mention and I really, really want to mention it. If you want to look at issues in the past inclusivity that are still happening today, do yourself a favor and look up Will Rogers. Will Rogers was a prominent American actor who consistently played white cowboys in in film, TV shows, movies. Uh, Will Rogers, very, very well known. Um, Ask your grandparents or parents about this. Probably your grandparents, they, they know. He came up in conversation the other day, and I'm like, oh, Will Rogers, who's that? Sounds familiar. Look it up. White dude, cowboy, yo, yeehaw. Fun fact, Will Rogers wasn't white. Will Rogers was totally Cherokee. Um, he may have had some European ancestry, some European ancestry, born into the Cherokee Nation, identified as Cherokee, um, like literally born, I think, on a reservation. Will Rogers, not a white cowboy absolutely a Cherokee member of the First Nations, always consistently portrayed the kind of person who nearly obliterated his people. It's very interesting and and such a um, poignant reminder of how inclusivity is dual-sided. Like, was he included in Hollywood and did he have consistent jobs and employment and an opportunity? Yes, the, the guy made bank. Like He was doing really well. Was the inclusion of Will Rogers accurate to who he is as a person? That's up for debate. I mean, he has passed on since then, so I won't be able to interview him, sadly. But you do have to wonder, how did he feel about portraying white cowboys? As a member of the very nations that white cowboys sometimes, oftentimes, uh, sought to destroy. That's got to be complicated. Um, So, again, inclusivity is not always the greatest thing on the planet when it's not conducted appropriately or properly. I I do want to give you some final things to think about on this. There are programs out there. There are people out there who are specifically trained and designed to help you be inclusive. I would caution against overexpensing on that. Um, and, and here's why. There are some programs I've seen, seen that are in the thousands, um, taught and trained by, by professionals who absolutely know what they're doing. Those, the, those are better suited for large groups. Like if you are part of a company and you're thinking, you know what, I think my, in my small business or even like my mid-level business or corporate really needs to uh, address this, that is when high-ticket professionals absolutely um, come into play because you're not just looking at individual behavior. You're looking at a whole entire systems, logistics. Definitely hire somebody to help, you know, set these things in place. But for you as an individual, and especially you as an author, if you feel like you need to hire somebody to help you learn how to treat other people like human beings because that's essentially what it comes down to in the end. I would argue that's not where I'd put the money. I would put that money more in a therapeutical sense. What is going on that you need help with this? And this sounds so mean. I'm saying this out loud. I'm like, oh my gosh, this sounds so mean coming out. I swear it's not. Um, and I say this because I've actually lived in towns, uh, small towns, small town, uh, Midwest, small Midwestern towns, wonderful people, 
really nice people. Like I, I have so many wonderful friends still today and we've known each other since we were like 11. Okay. Hearts of solid gold would lay their lives down for anybody else. Never, ever, ever, ever would differentiate themselves from somebody who physically looks different or may mentally behave a different way. However, <laughs> going back to that phrase, small Midwestern town, there are some mentalities that are unavoidable. That is what I'm talking about. If you feel like you need help with this, like professional help with this, first, like, I would ask yourselves why. Let's just say one of my friends from there is like, and I had most of my friends were writers <laughs> then and, and as much as now. And if they, if they were to come to me, it's like, Nikki, I feel like I really need to hire somebody to help me be more inclusive in my writing. I would ask them, why do you feel this way? I would bet you 10 to 1 the answer probably because, well, the community I grew up in had no people of color. Like, they really, it really did. It had, like, two. Um, and the, honestly, the one black guy who lived there for decades, um, the locals literally would say, ah, oh, we just consider him a tan farmer. Like, they didn't even want to acknowledge that the man had African ancestry. That's literally how bad it was in decades prior. So obviously my friends are not racist but did we all well I spent time they literally grew up in this area where it's kind of a subconscious issue yes and that's where I'm like yeah I would actually talk to therapists or talk to somebody who's really specialized in sort of reprogramming how you think about people it was something that I had to experience myself. I was born in Southern California, grew up in classrooms where everybody was from a different country. It was weirder to meet somebody who was from the United States than it was to meet from somebody who's from some obscure island in the middle of the South Pacific. It was that beautiful. When we moved to rural Midwest in the middle of nowhere where everybody was white, first day of fourth grade, I, I literally thought everybody was sick, like, like physically had a fever or the stomach flu because I'm like, mom, they're so pale. Everybody's pale. Is there like a, a flu going around or something? And she kind of laughed and she's like, oh, we got to talk about this. But I noticed as years went on in this community that I was starting to gain some of their mentality, which was very different from what I was used to. Like when I was growing up, if you saw a bunch of guys come by and their their skin tone was darker than yours, you didn't really brace yourself for any sort of awkward confrontation or uncomfortable or like, oh my gosh, they're going to attack me. No, I mean, not unless they were very visible. The visible signs you looked for were like chains and spikes and, you know, bikes and bloodstains. You know, like you'd see other indicators. It wasn't all about skin tone. But in small town Midwest, um, rural Midwest, um, anybody slightly darker than you and it wasn't because he played softball there wouldn't there'd be like oh my gosh he like made eyes at me and I'm so uncomfortable or or there's a group of them and I feel like I'm gonna get mugged and it started to sink in like like into me I started when I moved out of that into a bigger city once again in, in my teens I noticed that my reactions to people had changed over the years. And that really worried me. That does not mean I was ever racist. Not at all. What it did mean was that community aspects, social culture had definitely impacted my, my view, my view, like my, my worldview. Uh, so that had to change. Definitely talk to some people about it. 
and it's like no longer an issue. And and we'll talk about other hot topics some other time, but like we think about um, homosexual marriage, you know, gay rights, um, trans rights, all these different things. Even in my teen years, I had some very strong opinions I'm not proud of today. What changed? I got more education. I went to college. I went to university. I got more than one degree. I talked to people. I learned more. I changed my community. I changed my social setting. I changed my cultural setting, which helped change you know, my viewpoints and gain more clarity. And that's what I'm talking about. If you're really concerned that inclusivity is a challenge for yourself, ask yourself why. And when I say, you know, look into the therapeutic aspect rather than hiring somebody just to be inclusive, I mean, really look, look into the therapy, you know, talk to a therapist, talk to a psychologist, um, because they could probably help you identify where the challenge actually comes from. So that's where you can end it. Like if you, if they find out that it's because you're from rural Midwest or whatever, I don't know, it's like, you know, that small town mindset they're going to help you identify, okay, here are the ways that we can address this at the core of the root cause. Maybe it means moving, or maybe it means spending less time at the bar down the street and more time online talking with people from around the world. Who knows? But having a professional who is focused on mindset is going to be a lot more helpful for you at this point as an individual than somebody who's probably more focused on the corporate set of systems, which has its benefits as well. Don't get me wrong. But you want to make sure you you wouldn't buy, buy into a software program that's designed to operate 500 different computers at once when you just have your one laptop. You know what I mean? Make sure it's appropriate for you. I realize that this is probably one of the longest podcasts I've ever done, <laughs> but it was a lot to go over. Um, and I still feel like there's a lot that I didn't even get a chance to talk about. That being said, please, please, please consider looking into the Mind to Manuscript course membership. It is a year-long membership. The course itself is to help you write your story and write it well. I constantly am adding new themes. I'm going to do more themes about people of color, inclusivity. I'm going to do more themes about culture, about um, there's going to be some themes about even just like how to describe your characters on the physical level based on their environment. Um, I did touch about that already, but I'm constantly adding to this. You know, someone brought up this really good point where she wants to write about mermaids, but she also wants to be um, inclusive and have people of color. I'm like, well, the interesting thing about marine life is the color coding, so to speak, is a bit different than what you see on land. So can you have a mermaid of a darker skin tone? Absolutely. Does that mean that they're from the Africa or the West African or Cote d'Ivoire coast? No, doesn't have to be, you know? And she was like, oh my gosh, that's so cool. Um, so things like that, you know, I, I do talk about this and I encourage the membership because you get the hands-on aspect. You get to actually like work with me directly. I'm also going to um, invite publishing professionals in to answer questions directly. If there's a literary agent that you've been really interested in, or maybe there's a marketing pro that you've been following on Instagram, you know, I'm following them too. And I'm communicating with them and saying, Hey, what can we do to schedule some time to get these questions directly answered and give you that FaceTime, that one-on-one time as much as possible, you know, with, with these busy, busy pros. So do look into it. If you have any questions, please feel free to hit me up on Instagram, all my contact information in the uh, description box. And I really do genuinely respond to you. 
you're not going to email me and then have some like general form given back to you. I do personally respond. That's just who I am. That's who I'm always going to be. If I ever grow into an agency, I'm still going to be that way. And I'm going to encourage everybody else in, you know, if that becomes a thing, go make it a rule for them too. I'm like, if you feel like this is too much to do, then this is a different program, you know? So yeah, do feel free to ask me questions directly, get some insight. If you want more help with like, hey, how can I be inclusive? How can I uh, better represent people of color? feel free. If you have cultural questions, like, hey, I have a character who I really want to originate from the Indian subcontinent, but I realize that there are different regions, or maybe you don't realize there are different regions and different dialects and different cultures within that one nation alone. And you're like, listening to this and going, oh, well, crap. I mean, (laughs) email me. Oh my gosh, I studied it. I've got friends from there. Like, I, oh, I'm a Bollywood addict and that <laughs> probably just made some people eye roll. But no, like seriously, like you've got questions like that. I've studied a lot from around the world and I, and if there's anything that I don't know, I probably know somebody from there who I can direct you to who can help you out. So do feel free to keep in touch and, and just let me know any way that I can help you. You've been listening to The Writer's Workshop. If you want to learn more about developing your craft or you're ready for an editor to take a look at your manuscript, head on over to NikkiAuberkit.com. Be sure to follow me on Instagram as well for more tips, tricks, and inspiration. And as always, keep on writing.